Welcome to Gin and Topic. Woo! We are here for another series. Yep, another one. Just keeps happening. Just it keeps does. going. It does. And so we got loads of gins. Oh yeah, tons of gin. Tons of gin. Tons of experts. Yeah. Tons of topics. Well, and that's the thing, you see. Give us a gin. Talk to anyone. We will. Mm. We will talk to anyone about anything. So yeah, we're going to talk to a ton of people about loads of stuff over gin. And I'm going to make rude comments while we do it to stay on brand. <laughs> and you never know, we might actually learn some stuff. We might even remember stuff. <laughs> oh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Who are we talking to? We're talking to Dr. Joanna Ramaswamy. Okay. Um, and so Joe is an astrophysicist from the UK Astronomy Technology Centre in Edinburgh. Oh, the minute you say that, the minute the words astrophysics come out your mouth, I'm like, oh, fuck, here we go again. Because I don't understand any of this shit. I'm we sorry, are Joanna. off into the galaxy, but we are not doing exoplanets. Right, okay. We're not doing gin in space. Okay. We are doing why are galaxies the shapes, sizes, and colours that we observe in the nearby universe? Because they are. And what physical processes shaped them and the evolution of a billion years. So our topic... Yeah is invisible light. Oh, piss off. Invisible light. Yeah. That sounds like some BS, I'm sorry. No, I'm sure it's not. Our question is, how does invisible light from across the electromagnetic spectrum help us understand the history of our universe? Do you want the simpler question? Yeah. Why do astronomers need so many telescopes? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> I like that question. So, yeah, we are going to find out. Why do they need so many telescopes to see stuff? Or not stuff? Who knows? I'm going to have very little to contribute to the what do we know section. That'll be a fun one. Yeah. So here is Jo. We will let her in and get some gin on the go, shall we? Oh, yeah, that will help. It will, always does. Have you got a gin? I do have a gin. I haven't opened it yet. I have been saving it. We haven't either. It looks gorgeous. Isn't it beautiful? So I have been so excited by the shape of this bottle of wanting to try it. So we are trying Lind and Lime gin. Can you tell us about why we're trying it? Yes, um, it's got a really good science-y namesake. Um, so Lind and Lime gin is made in the port of Leith in Edinburgh, um, which is where I'm from and where I work at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh. And Lind in the in the name is named after uh, Dr. Lind, uh, Dr. James Lind, who was a Scottish scientist and a ship's surgeon. And he has supposedly uh, conducted the first ever recorded clinical trial. So he, uh, one working on ships, and it was in the 18th century, scurvy was a big problem, and there were various uh, remedies for scurvy. So he conducted the first ever clinical trial uh, where he got 12 men to try various different things um, to see if it would cure their scurvy. Apparently on day five or so, they'd run out of oranges, but the men with scurvy had already uh, recovered. So um, that was when they discovered that citrus fruit is a, is a, oh, a cure cool. for scurvy. They didn't know it was vitamin C, but um, it was still one of the first clinical trials. Um, and there's almost a tangential link to um, to my job now in that the Royal Observatories in Edinburgh, um, well, the Royal Observatories in the UK were really set up um, because astronomy had such a close link with the maritime trade. And yes. being able to tell the time and work out your longitude was very, very important. So in fact, the original site of the Edinburgh Royal Observatory is up on Calton Hill, where um, you can see down to the Port of Leith, so they'd have been able to look up to the time ball, which drops and tells them the time. Oh, um, nice. So. Cool. And I have to say, <laughs> it is a stunning bottle too. Oh, and we got citrus fruit. Well, I have. I, I would like the orange, please. You can have the lime. We just That's sort of the raided official, the We the raided bag. the bag of frozen fruits that was in the freezer. Very nice. Frozen is good, yeah. Um, I've got a Ooh. slice of lime, so... 
Ooh, give that a whiff. Ooh, ooh, Smells okay. very nice. There's something, you'll be able to tell me what it is. I'm never good at identifying. Ooh, it smells woody. Yes. Like wet wood. Wet wood. That's it. <laughs> Which imagine doesn't sound appealing. <laughs> imagine being on a wet wooden ship. I don't know. <laughs> That's quite a good way, yeah. Okay, here we go. Ooh. We are pouring it in. And it says lime with peppercorns and juniper. juniper. Ooh. I was just looking at the bottle. So the bottle is stunning. It's a turquoise sort of ribbed bottle it looks lovely i believe it also has a local link to the glassware making glassware it's very very local in many aspects oh i love that that is so cool yeah yeah can i can i yeah we can go in cheers cheers Cheers. Ooh. Ooh. Mmm. Doesn't taste a wet wood. Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> yeah, not that I've sort of tasted wet wood too often. You do get a bit of citrus. You get a bit of almost not spice, but that warmth from the peppercorn. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's really nice. I like that. Because we've had some peppercorn gins before. We've had a couple of them. We haven't really liked them. Yeah, There's been, been too, too much peppercorn-y. peppercorn um, but this is lovely and it has just got a little bit of warmth. A little bit. And it has got a that little bit of musty. I'd wondered if the lime would be overpowering, but I don't think it is. It's not. Mm. No. No, it's just a little little bit it's a little tart. Yeah. It is a yeah. little little Scottish tart. I like that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Jeez, Sarah, starting early. Hmm. I can see the tone of this episode. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. It's really good. Really good. I like that I'm enjoying one. it. Yep. So, Excellent. We have had a couple of drinks. You can now relax <laughs> and sips. enjoy we your drinks. had drink. a couple of sips. drinks. Careful. Sips. <laughs> sips. Maybe um, you have. But before we drink too much. Oh, gosh. Here we go. We are going to just, you know, enlighten you with how much we know about your subject. It could take a while. Maybe pour another couple of drinks. (laughs) Or it could take no time at all. Don't think it'll take long. I'm really sorry. (laughs) Okay. So our question is, how does invisible light from across the electromagnetic spectrum help us understand the history of our universe? (laughs) Answers on a postcard. I don't even know what the electromagnetic spectrum thingy is. (laughs) Wavelengths. That's what I get is wavelengths. Wavelengths. Good. That's more than I have. But I don't understand how light can be invisible because that just seems opposite. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point. UV. Gin tonic. Oh. Glowing. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So So it's UV light, but then I still don't get how that works. Don't know. We're doing We're full of don't knows. (laughs) Um, Other light things. Light in space. Uh oh, my brain went to doesn't travel, and then I realised that sound. History of universe. Don't uh, the light from planets takes thousands of years to get millions of years to get to us. So most planets we're looking at are dead. Stars, dead. Not planets. Stars. Again, if it's not in Doctor Who, I don't know it. No. No. So no. I've got nothing here. I'm really I'm useless. It's like educating a five-year-old in this case. <laughs> I remember from series two. Oh. Oh, did we have a guest who told us something about this that I don't remember? Did we do exoplanets? Gin, where's the best place for gin in the universe? Best Sorry. place for gin in the universe. I remember all the stuff in the universe, but I seem to remember something about light and it taking a long time. Good. So we're on a, a solid footing here. <laughs> I'm going to ask the other question. Oh, the other question. We've got another question. Why do astronomers need so many different telescopes? I think I it's... don't know because they want them because they look nice. I don't know. I think it's like your dad and cars and motorbikes. <laughs> ah, could be. It's just like, oh, I've got that one. I need another. Yeah. Yeah. Do astronomers want more when they're having a midlife crisis? Oh. <laughs> Do they suddenly go for the... Good question. The racy model. Uh, are there telescope. racy models of telescopes? <laughs> Maybe. We will find out. 
So what do you think then? <laughs> we are hugely knowledgeable and you're now going to say, do you know what, you guys, you've got to... <laughs> I think there were lots of really good words there. Um, so, <laughs> what, like light? And we don't know. There were some concepts. There were some concepts that were interesting. I'm slightly offended about the midlife crisis comment, but um, we will we will. Is get that because you just bought a really nice racy telescope? So in fact, my job is working on a telescope design study with a plan Ooh. to build one of the next generation telescopes in the 2030s. So my entire life at the moment is about why we need a new telescope. <laughs> And it's not I'm just sorry. because you've got a few it's and you want another. It's not just because it's very sexy. No, it's um, <laughs> there are there are lots of reasons uh, which I'm trying to put together into a nice big uh, justification. Um, oh, cool. So, should we come back to? You? I think the place we can start with answering that question is is uh, invisible light and what I meant by that. So you were you were definitely hitting on some of the like some of the points I was getting at with invisible light. And, and as an astronomer, uh, astronomers don't call it invisible light, but I feel like this is a nice way of talking about it. So we have the visible light that we can see with our eyes. So that is all of the mm-hmm. colors of the rainbow that make up a, a spectrum of colors. Um, and light is electromagnetic radiation. So for the purposes of this, it's waves, electromagnetic waves, but it... it um, electromagnetic radiation is equivalent to light in this context. So the electromagnetic spectrum is the spectrum of colours of light, Um, but it extends beyond what we can see with our eyes. So we can see the colours of the rainbow from red to blue, Um, but then it extends... Can you remember your rainbow? Red, oh no, wait, that's the wrong song. Red, hold on. (laughs) Richard of York game Battle in Vain. That's what I remember. Absolutely. Are you doing your pride bag? Red... Orange, yellow, green, blue, purple. <laughs> Very nice. Very scientifically accurate. Um, and um, no, no, but absolutely it is. Um, so indeed, um, the colours of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can see with our eyes. And so if we combine all of those colours, uh, we get white light. Um, so white light is made up of all of those colours of the electromagnetic spectrum. Which so white just messes up- with my head because, of course, if you combine paint, you get black. But if you combine white light, you get white. It's just... It- light Every is time- white. I was trying to come up with a rhyme to help you remember it, but I couldn't. But it is that bonkersness that you are combining everything exactly. and you get something that we think of as being a light that has no colour mm. in it, but actually it has all the colours. It's when it reflects no colour all of the colours. So in fact, if we yeah. could get into the, the physics of it, I suppose, colour that we see is just light being reflected off things. So mm. yeah. tree leaves are green because they reflect the green light and they absorb the other colours of light. Um, the light that we get from the sun is the light that our eyes have evolved to to be able to see the best. So most of the energy in the light from the sun comes in those visible wavelengths of light that we can see with our eyes, those visible colors. So the color of light there is just hitting on something else. That the, the color of light corresponds to the wavelength of the light. So the wavelength is, is literally how long the wave the wave of, of the light is, um, but we're talking very, very tiny scales, so nanometers, um, impossibly small to imagine. But as you said, there is light that exists beyond what we can see with our eyes, beyond that rainbow spectrum. Um, you mentioned ultraviolet. So that is if we keep going to higher and higher energies to shorter and shorter wavelengths. So we go beyond the blue light that we can see with our eyes up into the ultraviolet Um, So that's very high energy radiation that our eyes are not sensitive to, but is also emitted by the sun. I mean, UV is what, um, you know, why we have to wear sunscreen. Um, Which my body quite likes, but your body hates. (laughs) Everybody should be wearing sunscreen against UV light, Sarah. Obviously. Everybody should. But you just need... As a skincare fan. More of it. I'm pale. We get it. Ha ha ha. (laughs) And you know what? When I'm 80 and I'm looking 60 because of my dedication to my sunscreen, I will be happy. That's true. Thank you. That's true. (laughs) So, uh, Indeed, though we are quite lucky that our atmosphere protects us from a lot of that UV radiation mm. already. Um, so that is good for our skin in that, you know, in, on a, we don't always have to wear an excessive amount of sunscreen, though we should always be wearing a little bit. Um, but it's bad if you want to do UV astronomy and see what is in space that's emitting UV radiation beyond there because our atmosphere stops us from being able to see yeah. out. Yeah. So that's why we need to put telescopes in space. Um, mm-hmm. and maybe I'll come back to that. 
Yeah. So the electromagnetic spectrum, we said it goes beyond what you can see with your eyes into the invisible light, as I call it. <laughs> um, so we've got the ultraviolet on one end. The other end, if we go down to cooler and cooler, like lower energies through the colors of the rainbow, down to red, down to infrared. Um, so that is mm. also electromagnetic radiation, also essentially light, but it's beyond the visible spectrum. And that comes from warm things. So I don't know if you've, if you've seen um, an infrared camera that can yeah. trace heat you know our bodies yeah. are always emitting infrared radiation because they are warm um mm. and that is a kind of light i guess um mm. but just very low energy and then if we keep going even further to lower and lower energies we get into the microwave so the energy mm. that a microwave oven uses to cook food is also electromagnetic radiation um and even lower energy than that we get into radio so radio waves also electromagnetic radiation all kinds of light Rate, would you consider a radio wave to also be light? Yes. In, in astronomy Whoa. terms, yes. Invisible, yeah. <laughs> invisible light. Yeah. Um, I think astronomers are pretty fast and loose with definitions of things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so if we go up to high energies, we get to UV, eventually we get to X-rays and gamma rays. Those are the very highest yeah. kinds of yeah. electromagnetic, radi- highest energy kinds of electromagnetic radiation. And down to the lowest end, we get to radio waves. So one of the reasons that astronomers need so many different telescopes is because we want to see all of these different kinds of light and you need different kinds of telescopes that are tailor-made to to observe those particular mm. wavelengths and, or colours of light. Mm. Okay, which also begs the question of why? <laughs> yeah. Because in like simple terms, you just think that the difference in a telescope just helps you to see further. Mm-hmm. that's that that's what be, my that would be I just think guess. you know standard telescope from little high street shop toy <laughs> telescope not going to see very far just sort of doing your eyes doesn't yeah see doesn't see far, far yeah so it's not a case of just seeing further and further it's seeing different lights in the same area yes abs- absolutely yes mm-hmm. um but I'm going to come back to this point of seeing further so with telescopes that we're talking about in fact can I like you like, what do you think a telescope looks like? Describe it. <laughs> describe a telescope. Uh, pointy four-leg yeah. thing with with tunnel thing on top yeah. that one eye. Yeah, and then I'm, it I'm enjoying the yeah. hand gestures. Yeah, yeah, it's a podcast. Those aren't going to help anyone else. <laughs> Anya, come on. Hand gestures for a podcast, but yeah, yeah absolutely. A tripod with a long cylindrical. Yeah. And you look through one end and the other end often points up towards the night sky. And takes up far too much room. Yeah. So quite often bought on a whim, gathers (laughs) dust and then gets sold. Yes, um, I think that's true of a lot of telescopes. Uh, But I would say not the kind of telescopes that people are using for cutting edge science. So the kind of telescope you're describing is... Usually, actually, in fact, if you buy a telescope for using at home now, it's a, it's a more modern type of telescope than that. The kind of telescope you're describing is really a kind of old timey sailor's <laughs> telescope, I think. You know? um, oh, no, 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 no. Old timers. <laughs> I think it's very much the picture that you have in your head. I mean, that I have in my head when I think of a telescope. But in yeah. fact, uh, technology's moved on. It moved on several centuries ago um, to uh, rather than using. Well, it's like scientists, isn't it? It's like, it's a scientist. We all imagine the white coat on the yep bearded exactly. old grey man right so it's the same with telescopes yes yes absolutely and telescopes were invented first of all for for magnifying for, for use at sea to be able to look to the horizon and 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 you know uh the first person to point a telescope at the sky was Galileo 400 years mm. ago now um so he wasn't he didn't invent the telescope but he was the first person who thought to look up with one um <laughs> And he discovered all kinds of things that, uh, you know, he looked at the moons of Jupiter um, in detail. So we've known about 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 using telescopes for for, for space for, for hundreds of years, mm. um, and that very much was the the old timey telescope that you mm-hmm. can imagine. Um, telescopes now don't tend to use lenses, so you don't need them to be. Um, well, they, they don't use glass lenses, um, yeah. but they use mirrors to reflect the light. And what that means is you can kind of fold the light up on itself, reflecting between mirrors. So you can make your telescopes much smaller mm-hmm. because it got to a point where they were trying to build telescopes that had, you know, bigger and bigger uh, lenses and they were longer and longer and longer and to the point where they, they just weren't like structurally sound. Mm. So they needed to come up with some <laughs> new way of building them. 
But in general, so the you know the bigger the telescope, the 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 more detail we can see, but not the further we can see. So when we right. think about looking out into space, it's not a, a it's not about the distance that we're looking. Magnification comes into it. How how much bigger can we see things that are far mm-hmm. away? Mm-hmm. Um, but the the biggest thing in space is how faint things are. So. Um, if we think about the night sky and you can look up on a on a clear night and you can see some stars. If you're in a city, you can maybe see 20, 30, 40 stars. I don't know. If you're in mm. the countryside, somewhere very, very dark and away from light pollution, you can see maybe a few thousand stars. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those stars are inside our own galaxy. Everything beyond that is so faint that we can't see it with just our eyes. Mm, you need mm. something much larger that can collect a lot of light um, mm. so that that faint object shows up. So the telescope, for example, that I'm working on, um, the design study for this concept for this telescope, um, will be 50 meters across. So it's not... Uh, okay, Fifty. what's 50 meters so a standard length in a swimming pool is 25 meters. Right? Oh, okay, so it's bloody big. It's, it's enormous. Huge. Yeah. Huge. yeah. Yeah. That's like a big telescope. That can't sit in the corner. Yeah, but we have to stop saying telescope okay, because sorry, I keep just yeah. thinking of a 50 <laughs> massive long old fashioned telescope. Okay. <laughs> yes, it won't be long. It will look much like a satellite dish, you know? So it's mm-hmm. a big uh-huh. dish with a receiver in it. Um, like like a giant satellite dish um, mm. that will live in the desert where it's very, very dry because we don't want too much atmosphere moisture to get in the way. Mm-hmm. And it's also very mm-hmm. high up. So it's the telescope I'm going to work on is what well, I'm working on is the Atacama Large Aperture Submillimeter Telescope. So try saying that three times fast. <laughs> <laughs> does it does it have a nickname? At last. Um, oh, so, yes. oh, so my job title is At Last Scientist, which I think is quite cute given that I've nice. spent many years training and it's my first postdoc. So. At last. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... So yes, it's very, very big. It will be one of the biggest telescopes of its kind. Um, the Atacama Desert in Chile is where it's going to be going to be built if it if it gets mm-hmm. built. Um, it's a very popular place to put telescopes these days. It's very very dry <laughs> and it's very high up. It's about five thousand meters above sea level. Right. Um, so as we said about the atmosphere before blocking UV radiation, it blocks other mm-hmm. kinds of radiation as well. So in this case, submillimeter, which is somewhere in between the infrared and the microwave um, that we were right. talking about in that spectrum. Mm. So cold things. It traces very cold things in the universe. And the atmosphere absorbs a lot of that radiation. It's very difficult to observe Mm. from the ground. So you need to put telescopes somewhere very high and very dry. Mm -hmm. So different types of telescopes can observe different kinds of light. Um, Mm. And why do we want to see all these different kinds of light? Well, the light, as I said, the the colour of light corresponds to the energy that it carries. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, I don't know if you did science at school um if you ever apparently I did but I don't really (laughs) seem to remember any of it I know I got I did triple science and I got one GCSE so well I I did physics a level oh darling and uh failed it (laughs) I took it again and got a worse score the second time round (laughs) only because I couldn't remember anything for exams which love physics, handy now. but love it. Yeah, exactly. Sif like brain. Yeah. Um, I empathise. Yeah. I empathise. I was rubbish at exams as well. So, mm. so um, <laughs> if you ever used a Bunsen burner, um, oh, I burnt all sorts of things. Right, in okay, those. so this is the stuff that we it. remember from high school physics, right? <laughs> um, can't forget burning things. Um, mm-hmm. So. Depending on how you adjust the the airflow in a Bunsen burner, you can get it to burn hotter Mm. or cooler and the flame changes color, right? Yeah. So -hmm. when you have a blue flame, it's very, very hot. And when you have Mm -hmm. the orange flame, it's much, much cooler. You can Mm -hmm. put your hand through that and uh, been there, done that. People did. Yeah. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so the color of the flame tells you something about the energy that it that it has, the energy that um that the the color of light or the wavelength of light corresponds to. So when we're looking out into the distant universe, we want to look at different physical processes. How are stars born? How did they die? Um, What happens when Mm. you smash two galaxies together? Um, Mm -hmm. 
there are lots and lots of different things going on on very different energy scales. There's a lot of space that's very, very empty and very, very cold, and there's not much there. But if you can just detect the few grains of dust that are there, we can we can learn about what the the physics is is going on. And then you've got other places, you know, black holes swallowing up materials, the, the highest energy process in the universe, and those are blasting out X-rays at very high energy. So we see all of these different physical processes going on. If we just looked in the visible light, all we would see is the starlight from the stars. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing else would be detected. Be like, nothing's going on here. <laughs> just here, nothing happening. Right. It's actually so surprising. Right? Exactly that happens when you look at you look at a picture of a distant galaxy and you just see the stars and they're okay, normal, normal galaxy, nothing yeah. going on. You add in, for example, the radio emission from that galaxy, and then suddenly you can see enormous jets blasting <laughs> out, you know, hundreds of times the, the, the span of the galaxy out in between uh, into space. And it tells you there's something else going on. <laughs> and that's really cool. And I love knowing that you can do that. But let me ask the really annoying question of, OK, so you can look at all those and you can learn about it. But why should we? Ah, well, that's more of a, <laughs> yes, indeed, a philosophical question that, um, <laughs> that can be very difficult to answer. And there are mm. lots of answers for this. And I've definitely, over the course of, you know, doing a PhD, <laughs> I've been through them in yeah. my head. Um, I think I can just say, for me, I am very privileged to be able to study something that I think is just really fascinating Mm. um there are lots of very practical explanations as well the technology that we develop for observing um you know especially when we talk about these multi-wavelength observations across the spectrum you need to really push engineering Mm. and technology Mm. to its limits Um, and that has loads of knock-on effects Mm. for society right so for example the kinds of cameras that um were originally developed for for telescopes or ccds were, were the first um kind of kind of chips that were used in digital cameras and mm-hmm. smartphones. And, and all mm-hmm. of this technology has lots of applications. And then there's also learning about physics, learning fundamentally mm-hmm. about our place in the universe, um, learning about how things work. And, and I think mm-hmm. there's a lot there, which also has very tangible applications. But for me, it's certainly that bigger picture kind of just wonder at, mm-hmm. there are so many things we don't understand. Mm-hmm that are pretty fundamental to, you know, why are we here? How did we get here? What What's going on out there? You know, yeah. it's, it's uh, yeah, the big questions. And it must be just a bigger version of looking out your window and it's like, oh, it's just a bush, just yeah. some trees, nothing else going on. And then you look a bit further and see there's cars and all sorts and going further and there's cities and there's a you know, and then going out and zooming out and seeing a whole world. Um, So that whole thing that actually, unless you look, you don't know what's there and what's happening. Yes, for sure. And certainly with with this kind of telescope design study I'm working on, there are a lot of questions that we we don't know how to ask yet because this Mm -hmm. telescope would be built... You know, if we're lucky in maybe 15 years time, it will keep operating for 30 or 40 years. So we're talking about, you know, what questions will we need to answer scientifically in 50 mm. years time? Mm. And we just have no idea. How do we, how do we ask those yeah. questions? Yeah. Um, science moves quickly and it moves in diff- different directions that you really can't anticipate. Um, mm. But I think it's exciting to, yeah. to try, yeah. you know, to, to mm. just start to try and understand. Yeah. So what other question was um, sort of how to, how do they how does the invisible light help us understand the history of our universe? Ah, yeah. So of course you're talking about the question that you might ask in 15 years time and that future and how difficult that is, but then you're also asking those questions about then the history mm. and how you see that. So what is that timey wimey <laughs> business? <laughs> Um, can I start by asking you guys, uh, in fact, you started with this analogy of looking out the window and you can see, you know, a bush and a tree and they look a bit further and you can see some houses and you keep looking out and out and out and then you get to the world. Um, where do we go from there? Can you, just to get a sense of where you're at with the solar system. Yes. 
You're ten points. One point to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yep, the solar system, which is the the collection of planets um, that we are part of, orbiting the sun, which is mm-hmm. a star. Um, if we go out from there, what hap- where do we get to next? Do you think galaxy Milky Way thingy oh, magic? Yeah. Yes, I know because the chocolate bar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are lots of helpful chocolate bars. Yeah. Um, so the galaxy, the Milky Way, is made up of hundreds of billions of stars, much like our sun. Um, mm. And each of those stars might have uh, a solar system of its own, uh, planets mm. orbiting it. So then we go to the galaxy. Um, what about after that? It's on you now. I've well, done two. So then we did the episode on exoplanets. So that's the only other spacey word i know spacey word yeah <laughs> exoplanets no i mean that that's <laughs> exoplanets would be looking at planets going around other stars the stars other than our sun inside our own galaxy oh okay so we're not going even further so further even is further. the universe i'm not trying to be superior but i do look even further <laughs> so, no i have i have so much respect for it my so partner back to the midlife crisis and comparing the size of telescopes again and trying to get the better one <laughs> um exoplanets are very very cool um i study things outside of our own galaxy so extra galactic astrophysics um i live at oh, now that's a good that's a, name. That sounds like something. Yeah, doesn't it? Just yes. yeah. <laughs> that yeah, that means looking outside of our own galaxy to very distant galaxies. Um, so, uh, so it's bonkers far away. Yes, yes. And this is the thing when it comes to scales in astronomy. <laughs> You start even with our solar system and you think about the distance between us and the sun and that's unimaginably huge. Yeah, and that's, yeah, yeah. that's the smallest of small scales that we're talking about <laughs> yeah. in astronomical terms, right? So um, one thing that I, I don't know, I'm trying to think about how to explain in a clear way. In astronomy, you have to start using different descriptions for distance and for masses and things like that because you cover such a large range of scales. So you can't just talk about everything in miles because the numbers will get impossibly large really quickly. So there are lots of different units that we we use. Um, uh, in in like communicating astronomy, people often use light years as a uh, as yeah. a description of distance. So how far light can travel in a year, um, yeah. and we also tend to work like when you're working with with the kind of numbers in orders of magnitude, um, which means multiplying things by 10. Um, So how many times do you multiply by 10? So if you have like a a glass of gin, Mm -hmm. a glass of gin and tonic, let's say it's... Multiply it by 10. 250 You fall over. (laughs) (laughs) You would, you would. Um, So one order of magnitude larger would be uh, 2.5 litres. So like a large fizzy soda bottle of gin and tonic. (laughs) <laughs> and then oh, yeah. you multiply <laughs> you multiply that by 10 again and you'd have I guess a very good oh, bathtub full of bath gin of gin yeah yeah but could you imagine you put your head under and just go and then come back yeah again. but your body's been in that yeah okay grim <laughs> too much don't want to be in that bathtub um and then we multiply by 10 again and again and again and it doesn't take long before you've got you know, an ocean full of gin and tonic. And so when we talk about orders of magnitude, that's a way of covering lots of different scales in in quite small numbers, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So not having to add too many zeros and everyone going, what's that long number again? Exactly. So quite often you'll see things in scientific and astronomical papers that are abbreviated to however many orders of magnitude. So Mm. the joke is um, that because sometimes astronomy can seem a bit hand wavy because we're looking at things that are very far away and we don't have an awful lot of information about. So sometimes there's a good degree of estimation and guesswork involved. Um, so, or at least, you know, assumptions, as long as we account yeah. for those assumptions, yeah. it's fine. But quite often people joke, as long as you're within one order of magnitude, you're fine, which means you could have, you know, a bathtub of gin or a 2.5 litre bottle of gin. doesn't oh, matter. As long as we're within like that kind of, yeah. Like spin the wheel and then you get a bathtub. I got a swimming pool. <laughs> you get a symbol. <laughs> so in terms of the what you're looking at then, how much gin away are we looking? <laughs> oh, oh um, I don't even know. We're talking many, <laughs> many orders of magnitude. A few earths of gin. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about time. Um, yes. So 
we said, you said earlier, absolutely correctly, that the light takes time to travel to us and the light from very distant objects like stars that we can see in the night sky has taken thousands of years to travel mm. to us. Mm. So we're seeing what those stars look like a thousand years ago and they might not even be there now. Um, that's absolutely right. Now, if we look to even larger scales, so the nearest, the next nearest galaxy we can see outside of our galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy. It's a very, very mm. large pinwheel type galaxy, very beautiful. Um, it's 2.5 million light years away. So the light's been traveling for two and a half million years mm. across wow. the universe towards us. Um, so we're seeing what the galaxy looked like two and a half million years ago. So mm. we're looking way back in time. Now, if we look further and further, you can imagine we're seeing light that's coming from earlier and earlier points yeah, in the yeah. universe's history. Yeah. Mm. Um, the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. Um, depending on who you ask and what, what theory they, <laughs> they, <laughs> they like the best. Um, and so the earliest light we can see, if we look as far away as we can see, comes from the very first light that was emitted in the universe or the very first light mm. that, that traveled across the universe towards us. So after the Big Bang, the universe was incredibly hot, incredibly dense. It was a kind of particle soup. All the particles were bumping into each other. Mm -hmm. As the universe expanded, it cooled down. Some of those particles collapsed to form atoms. Mm. And then the light particles, photons, were able to travel freely across the universe. And that's mm. what we can see if we look out. It's called the cosmic microwave background. So there, that's in the microwave part of the electromagnetic mm. spectrum. And it's everywhere. We see it across the whole sky, this hum of, of light from yeah. just yeah. after the Big Bang. Um, so when I'm talking about looking at the history of the universe... What I mean is looking at objects at greater and greater distances that give us snapshots of what the universe looked mm. like at some particular mm. point in its evolution. We can't watch things evolve. It takes millions or, or mm. billions of years for a lot of these processes <laughs> to happen, right? Um, but what we can do is try and piece together those snapshots from different, different ages of the universe, yeah. from the beginning yeah. to now, and try and understand how it went from, from place to place on that path. Yeah which sounds so easy and simple to my tiny little brain <laughs> yeah it's just like look really far away and compare that to a bit closer oh, yeah, and compare yeah. that to a bit easy. closer yeah, and then yeah. to here and it's Done. like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. plot it on a graph yeah. sorted yeah so what are the kinds of things that you've seen then because you were talking about you know the shapes and colors and how so I was reading things earlier about um uh, why they're the shapes and the sizes and the colours that you see. So what kinds of things have you seen and can tell us about those? Well, I study galaxies and ga how galaxies evolve. So we talked about our galaxy, the Milky Way. Um, I don't know if you can picture what the Milky Way looks like if you've seen illustrations. We don't I, know. Yeah, I've seen the so, pictures yeah. that you can Google. It looks quite pretty. Yeah, yeah, really pretty swirliness. Yeah. bit spacey. <laughs> looks kind of like something you might get in a Marvel film when the title on the screen just says space. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yes, it's a really beautiful spiral galaxy. Um, but not all galaxies are as photogenic. Um, mm. So, I mean, we don't actually know exactly what the Milky Way looks like because we're inside it. So we can't yeah, yeah. fly all the way out and take a picture because it's hundreds of thousands of light years. Yeah. Um but we can look at the stars around us, look at the, what we can see around us and compare that to what we can see of distant galaxies and, and, and build up a picture of what it looks like, mm -hmm. kind of comparing to other, other, other objects out there. So when we look out, um, talking about the history of the universe, I look at galaxies um, whose light has been traveling across the universe for about 10 billion years. So they tell us about um, when the universe was quite young um, when the, the first big galaxies had formed and were um, furiously forming stars, so stars were, were being created much, much more rapidly than they are in, in our galaxy today. Yeah. Um, and that's how a galaxy grows, right? A galaxy is largely made up of stars. It's also got lots of gas in between the stars and mm. dust. Dust is actually, dust is my thing. I study yeah. dust. It's not very sexy. It's all but... gone a bit, what's the, the, Lila, 
name of Philip Holman <laughs> book, Dust. Dust. We're studying <laughs> dust. <laughs> it's not the ca- same kind of dust, though, is it? Yep. Is well, it, it could be that dust. dust. It's been a long time since I've read them. But there yeah, you go. Maybe it could be that. the same kind of dust. We just haven't caught Maybe up on our knowledge. I should, <laughs> I should brush up. <laughs> and when you're talking about that dust, is it, you know, because apart from Philip Pullman's dust, but, you know, like... For us, it's bits of skin and dirt yeah. and stuff that sort of <laughs> floated in air about our I'd like house. I think space dust would be a bit cooler than that. So, yeah, but is it yeah. just broken up bits of planets, planets and stars and meteorites? And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just throwing in some words. <laughs> words. Well done. <laughs> it's, um, it's a loose definition. Like I said, like astronomers tend to use word for things that are actually not really those things. So (laughs) We appreciate um, that. We like that. (laughs) Um, Dust is a very broad term. And actually, I am not a chemist, so I couldn't really tell you exactly what dust is. But dust is stuff that's bigger than atoms. So it's molecules and chunks of material. I don't really know what... But it's not as big as a planet. Yeah, it's not definitely not as big as a planet. It can't be defined as a thing. So it's just some stuff. It's stuff floating around. And the the place that we find a lot of dust is where stars are being born. So uh, when you form a star, you have very dense gas um, and a lot of dust. Um, And we were talking about UV earlier. UV is actually one of the more difficult wavelengths of light to measure in astronomy. First of all, you need to go to space and space missions are very expensive and very challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's it's just a very difficult wavelength to observe. And especially once we get into very distant objects, um, it becomes very, very tricky to observe in the UV. Now, young stars, um, the hottest stars, uh, which have very short lifetimes, so kind of trace star formation and where Mm. stars are being born, um, they emit in the UV. They're very bright in the UV. But we can't see them because it's very difficult to observe in the yeah. UV. Yeah. So what we can observe is the dust. That UV radiation, which is very, very hot, is absorbed by the dust in the clouds that surround these young stars. Um, and it heats them up. And then they emit cooler radiation uh, in the kind of infrared. And that gets shifted mm-hmm. into the submillimeter when we're looking very, very very far away um so we can observe dust and dust tells us about star formation so where we see a lot of dust we know that there are a lot of stars um yeah it's a kind of indirect tracer of a particular physical process and there's lots of examples of that using radiation that you know we talked about what why do you need all these different kinds of light they they trace different different processes it's sometimes in non-intuitive ways so even if we're looking Mm. at the very coldest stuff so the, the dust um it's tracing one of the, I think, the most exciting processes in the universe, the birth of stars. Um, mm. So, yeah. So our galaxy is quite blue because it's got a lot of young stars that are very, very hot in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's bluish. When we look at some galaxies that, that haven't formed any stars for a very long time, we see that they, they look much redder because they don't have any of these hot, blue, young stars right. in them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. just looking at the color of the galaxy that we can see, you can see with um, with visible light, you can tell something about how old the stars are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the, the Bunsen burner, the hottest stars are very blue. Um, mm-hmm. The coolest stars are, are kind of orange. Mm. And um, the hottest stars are also very, very big. Um, as a result, they're, they're very, very hot, very, very massive, but they burn through all of the, their fuel in a very short period of time. So they have very short lifetimes, only a few million years, which is nothing for a star. Oh, that's <laughs> like baby numbers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for a star like our sun will live for nine billion years. Well, say live, it will burn its fuel over nine yeah. billion years. Mm-hmm. And we're about four and a half billion years of the way through our sun's mm-hmm. lifetime so it's nicely middle-aged four and a half billion years before it goes um Kabam. before it turns into a red giant and uh consumes us all um which it, don't I panic don't panic it's many billion years <laughs> in the future <laughs> not gonna be around exactly so we can't tell how old the stars are but we can tell that if there aren't a lot of young stars which have short lifetimes Mm. they must have all died already. They must have all reached the end of their lifetimes and moved on. So that population of stars must have formed Mm. longer than a few million years ago. Yeah, Mm. yeah. So when you're talking about telescopes and colour and what you can see in space and all the rest of it, my brain is just filling with all the pictures. If I put space into 
any search engine or into any picture library or whatever, I'm inundated with all these pretty fabulous pictures. They're all quite sort of ready pinky with... There are some that are blue, some that are red. So are they the kinds of things that you're able to see in that way from these telescopes or... Is that the basic stuff? Are they made? No, I mean, a a lot, a lot of those, a lot of those things will be be nebula, so places where stars are forming these kind of clouds of gas with all this intricate structure, um, clouds of gas and dust, and they're inside our own galaxy. But also, you can look out to other galaxies, um, and there's you know galaxies that are in the process of merging. Sorry, I just remember I just remember the name of the book and I had to do a Sarah style jump. It's not just me. <laughs> Sorry. I was really involved and I was like, yeah, dust. And then I went, oh, I remembered it. <laughs> His dark materials. Thank wow. you. <laughs> oh, what Brilliant. a relief. Yeah. But I suspect anyway. it's a different kind of dust, sadly. Um probably. Probably a more, anyway. a more fictional kind of dust. But um <laughs> where were we? Um Ah, yes, the pictures, the beautiful pictures that you can see if you type in space Space. pictures. Um, Yes, Um, mostly those are false colour images. So that's not what you would see with your eyes if you looked through a telescope. So what they do is put a filter on a telescope that picks up a certain kind of light. So for kind Mm -hmm. of visible light, you might put a red filter on and a green filter and a blue filter. Because essentially... the Just like when you're doing your Instagram posts or whatever, you're just like... Let's make this a little bit more photogenic. Are you still I say using when we, Instagram filters? Are no. you using the pre-built-in Instagram I don't ones? actually put them on there, no. Okay. I know well, you know what? That's better than using the built-in Instagram filters. So credit. Filters. Hashtag no filter. Hashtag no filter. <laughs> so we want space hashtag no filter. <laughs> but it wouldn't, wouldn't be oh, It wouldn't be very good. Hashtag we definitely need the filters. Um, so, we can make that the hashtag. um but that but that's the visible light but with a filter so it depends it really depends on what we're looking for um essentially the cameras that you attach to telescopes are like black and white cameras they will just take a one black and white image but by Mm. combining those images with different colored filters on so you put a filter Mm. on and you just get the red light and you get a filter and you just get the blue light and then you combine them and you colorize those images and you can then see differences in things you can start to see that you know those colors changing and and where you have different structures so it's not just about making them look pretty it's also about Mm. understanding what's going on and then you can do that obviously at lots of different wavelengths beyond the visible light as well so you can take um emission in the radio um very low energy and then emission in the x-ray very high energy and you can put them together with different colors and start to see structure coming out that you know it makes a nice image to look at i will say when we say is that is that what i can see um most of these telescopes you can't look through so the 50 meter telescope atlas that we're building <laughs> there's no not, nice eyepiece no that you, you can't go sadly we've still got that image haven't we yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, okay. <laughs> and it is i think I, I wish i spent more of my life as an astronomer looking through a telescope at the night sky but i just it's been a really long time since i've done that actually and it, as much as i enjoy it <laughs> so what do you get well, you get data files, uh, oh. <laughs> essentially photographs. It's not quite as pretty. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, essentially photographs of the sky in lots of different wavelengths. And then you can combine them. You can combine them to make pictures or you can combine the numerical information to, you know, plot graphs of, of different mm. properties of those galaxies. I used X-ray data, X-ray observations of space, a, f- a photograph of space in the highest energy light that we can get to look at supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies that are swallowing up material and blasting out this high energy radiation from, from the, the, the regions near the, the supermassive black hole. Most highest energy processes in the universe, well, well, arguable. I would say they're pretty, pretty high energy. Um, so we have this photograph of space, but some of these sources you only have a handful of photons. I think eight photons was the limit for me when I said, okay, that's mm. that's not enough photons. Mm. Um, so you're dealing with very, very small amounts of information in certain cases. You're really just, in I think a lot of astronomy, you're really just getting the as much information as you can. And sometimes it's not very much at all. And then trying mm. to infer some understanding yeah. from that. So I'm thinking it's a bit like um, a dot to dot that you've got all the dots, like you've got the yeah, dots yeah. of the outline of a house, 
Yeah. Uh, with dots of the windows and the doors, and you're like, it's a house. Yes. But you haven't actually got all the information. It's just join You don't the know about yeah. the plumbing or what yeah. kind of carpet yeah. they've got. Like, all of that yeah. information is yeah. missing. Yeah. Um, astronomy is quite unique as a science, I think, in that it's you can't do experiments very easily. No. So you can't, can't just go pop out. out and go, well, let's have a look through the door and see what colour carpet it is. It's exactly. Like, no, it's too far away. You can't scoop out a bit of star and say, what's it made of? Um, all yeah. you have is the light that we get mm. from mm. those objects. So that's why all these different wavelengths of light are so important, because that's the only information we have. We, we can't go and, and measure it in any other way. There are some caveats to that. There are some very cool things that we can do that are not just with light. So gravitational waves, which um, have been in the news I say recently, I think it was like five years ago, the first detection. That's, that's <laughs> but, very good. That's yeah. recent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there, that is recent in terms of the galaxy and stars yeah, and light. Yeah. You know, Basically, it's just like right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, there are some other ways that we are starting to be able to probe certain aspects of mm. physics in the universe. But the vast majority of our understanding of space comes from the light that we get. Um, the other tool that we can use where we can do experiments is simulations on computers. So mm. you can put in all the stuff you think should be in the universe, put in all the laws of physics as we understand them, and then just run the clock forward from the mm. beginning of the universe to the end of the universe and see if it looks like the real universe. And it's yeah. actually quite amazing that... Um, with our understanding based on all of these observations and based on our understanding of physics and the, the fundamental kind of principles in physics, we can do a pretty decent job of simulating a universe on a computer. Um, that must be amazing if you plug it all in and you go, well, we'll fast forward and see. And it's like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It Snap. Is, it's wonderful. Um, I think they're incredibly beautiful and, and also beautiful in, in a kind of more philosophical sense that, that we've got some some really powerful tools to to do to that test our understanding and i think they complement running a simulation complements the kind of work i do observational work um in a in a crucial way that it gives us an opportunity to test those theories so mm. you 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 make a, a simulation you run it forward so let's run it forward you know a few billion years and we'll stop it where the universe is a few billion years old and then we look at the observations of the universe at that time and we try and work out what would what would what do those simulations, which are full of complicated things because they're mm. fuzzy and there's information missing and we have to guess what color the carpet is. And then we link those back to the, to the simulations and say, does it look the same? And if it doesn't look the same, what's missing from our simulation? Mm. What's wrong mm. in our simulation that doesn't produce um, the same thing? So one of the things I look at is galaxies that are forming thousands of stars per year. They're the most extremely star-forming places in the universe. And they're quite unusual and quite rare. But in the very early universe, we find a lot of them. So they're growing really rapidly. And simulations struggle to make mm. them. They don't come up in simulations. And we don't exactly know why. Again, there's a lot of argument about, you know, which models would produce slightly better outcomes. And, <laughs> and we're definitely getting there. Um, but I think it's something that's really interesting. It's funny, you find yourself in, in conversation with the, the, the simulations people all think that their simulations are right and our observations are wrong. They're like, well, you just, you just have a good enough telescope or you're making the wrong assumptions. Um, yeah. Whereas, uh, yeah, I'm an observation person and I, I tend to blame the simulation. <laughs> <laughs> It's all right. We won't. We won't tell them <laughs> if they're listening. Though there's nothing we can do. <laughs> oh, some of my best friends work on simulations, but um... <laughs> so what's you work in observation? What's the coolest thing you've seen? Oh, seen is a tough one because, like I said, I didn't get to look at them. But one of the cool things that I'm working on just now is um, we were looking at galaxies that were forming lots of stars. And we looked at them in the submillimeter. Like I said, that's where we see the dust. And we see that's a really good way of telling where there's lots of stars going on, uh, star formation going on. We also looked at them in the radio because uh, radio emission also traces star formation in a slightly different physical process. Mm. Um, but it's a good way to compare them. We can say, like, do we see the same things? We'd expect to see roughly, you know, a correlation between these two different mm. types of emissions. So we see star formation and we expect both of these things to show up. Mm. And we found two galaxies that didn't have any radio emission at all. They were really, really bright. We know there's lots of dust, but we didn't see anything in the radio. 
which is kind of weird. And we looked at all of the other wavelengths of light we had. So we looked through the visible light images, we looked in the infrared, in the UV, and there was nothing. They're, they're, they're invisible in all of those wavelengths of light. They're just very, very bright in the, the wavelength that we were looking at in the submillimeter where there's yeah. lots of dust. And that's kind of cool science-wise because there's something going on that we don't completely understand. Yeah. Um, our guess is that they are so distant that the only part we can see of them is the brightest part, which is, is that, that dust. That's the only part yeah. we, can, we can see. Um, so I'm trying to put together some follow-up observations to look at them with a bigger, better telescope to, <laughs> <laughs> to find out more so, about them. So in 15 years, when you've got that bigger, better telescope, you'll then be able to start looking at it. How long will that then take? When do we need to book you in to come back <laughs> tell to you about tell those. us what that bright light's doing? <laughs> well, to be fair, I'm going to try and follow them up with an existing telescope because that is a slightly smaller task than building an entirely new telescope just to yeah. look at my objects. But slightly. <laughs> um, it's, a good, it's a good question. It, it these projects are extraordinarily expensive. We're pushing yeah. the boundaries of technology and engineering and science, um, which means they're all like they're, they're much too expensive for a single country to mm. build themselves. Um, so mm. Atlas that I work in is a, an international collaboration. Um, and we're just in the first three years of the design of that. Mm. And we still don't know if we will get funding to go and build it. Mm -hmm. And if we do, where that funding would come from and who would be involved and, mm. and what, what the plan would be. So it's very much a, a collaborative process that people are working on, you know, because we got some nice European funding, which is wonderful, but mm -hmm. also because people are really excited about building mm -hmm. this facility because yeah. it will open up all these possibilities in their work. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. So let's say 50 years, and if we can do it sooner, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah just to be on the safe side. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say, I'm going to say 20. I think in 20 oh, years, okay. if everything Brilliant. goes well, we will have this telescope. We'll, we'll have been able to answer some of the questions. Oh, wow. Last year, there was a detection of phosphine on Venus that made the news. Mm. So phosphine is a chemical that, as far as we know, can only be produced through um, living animal processes, you know, um, yeah. bi biological processes. So the the I think one of the primary contributors to phosphine on Earth is penguins, um, mm -hmm. because it comes from their poo. Oh, I love so, that idea. It's like <laughs> a planet of penguins. <laughs> um, and there was um, a detection uh, using the telescope that I use uh, yeah. for looking at distant dust in galaxies, but this is the very same telescope. Um, was used to detect phosphine on mm. Venus. Mm. And that's, you know, I don't think anyone's suggesting it's penguins, but there is certainly, there's the possibility Damn. for bacteria, mm. exciting extraterrestrial bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to stick with the penguins. Just <laughs> I think penguins yeah. a bit more cute I think and cuddly that's than yeah. bacteria. Bacteria, uh, penguins, ooh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Planet of the penguins. Planet of the penguins, done. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's really, really difficult to do because that's a very, very small amount of emission in, in lots of other complicated yeah. molecular yeah, yeah. emission lines. And it's not my area of science, so I'm not <laughs> going to talk about it too much. But um, it was a real challenge. And, you know, building a telescope that can do that a bit better would be... Yeah would be a step towards looking at not just on Venus but on kind of anywhere in our solar system understanding the chemistry better and um, we can understand not only if there's likely to be penguins there but also um you know how did we come to have such a great time here on earth you know why mm. why do we have everything mm. we need for life here on earth um mm. we still don't completely understand how life began how we mm. got those fundamental building blocks for for you know biology to to kickstart in and and how and form you know life um and I mean, even how the water got here there's lots of questions that we mm. haven't haven't got answers to um and i think that yeah brings it back to one thing which i think you know talking about life on other planets and um looking out into the distant universe the earth is very very special 
Um, mm. And we have everything we need here to live comfortably. I mean, you know, we talk about exoplanets and we talk about all the possibilities out there, but ultimately, like, the Earth is so perfect for the way we've evolved to live on it um, that, that that's kind of one of the most important things. Mm. It's quite nice, just that whole bring us home, yeah. <laughs> send us off. <laughs> I think it's important to look out there, but important to also recognise our place here um, and protect it. Yeah, it's been lovely. I've really much. enjoyed the journey. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and imagine a different telescope sometimes. It's my promise. Not just one on a tripod, a proper yeah. yeah, yeah, need nice. to retrain that. Retrain the brain. Retrain, retrain the brain. The brain. <laughs> Absolutely. Come up with different images, but I'm going to stick with the image of Planet of the Penguins. Planet of the Penguins. <laughs> I like it. I think Planet of the Penguins with a bathtub of gin. Perfect. They're I'm happy. Sold. Yeah, that's right. Happy penguins. Yeah. And that's actually all the light that you see is just penguins partying with a bathtub of gin. <laughs> Debrief, debrief, debrief. I've got to admit, still find space bloody confusing. I do. Every time we do it, I learn a little bit more, but I still get frazzled. Yeah. And invisible light. Okay, I can kind of. Okay, I completely get invisible light now because it's the ends of the spectrum that we can't see. (laughs) (laughs) Up to the micro wave. There's your invisible light just there. When this comes out, that reference is going to be so old. But do we care? No, because Nigella and the micro (laughs) wave remains a bloody brilliant moment. (laughs) There you go. Um, So yeah, so I get invisible light, and I love the fact that they use just terms like invisible light because. Why come up yeah. with some scientific? Yeah, I term. don't care about scientific terms. Light. Doesn't make sense. Invisible light makes sense. I love approximations. Yeah. I love that it's kind of a bit, maybe like the difference between a glass of gin to a bathtub of gin. That really helped me actually understand how big we're talking. Yeah, to be absolutely. Fair. And I've got a new understanding of telescope because apparently it was about That's time insane. we updated our versions of telescopes. So telescopes are not just long, thin things on tripods. And I understand why scientists need newer, bigger, better ones. It's not like Dad and his motorbikes. They need them for science. They do. And because we're talking about billions and billions and billions of light years mm-hmm. away, yeah. um, closer, uh, well, not closer, but more defined seeing in different lights to be able to build up a picture. And I think that's what I really got was the understanding that you can't just take a picture like you would with a camera and that's what you see. You're having to take lots of images on lots of different lights to try and make up a kind of image. And it's a bit like dot to dot and it's a bit like inferring what what colour carpet. But do you know what I did realise? I could have used Doctor Who to understand something again because do you remember the episode with the werewolf? No. Right. David Tennant era. They go yeah. to Scotland. It's the beginning of Torchwood. The guy turns into a werewolf. Yeah. With the bold men who attack the house. It's, anyway. Yeah, it was a I good episode. I've got little... Little bits. Little, little faint. Well, bits. in that, they have a giant telescope, which is how they get rid of the werewolf, because he's not actually a werewolf. He's from space, you remember. Okay. But they have to use the Koh-i-Noor diamond and the moonlight and they... The koh The koh The koh the oh. big diamond that oh. the Queen okay. had, yeah. yeah. And they have to use the moonlight and it bounces through the telescope through the big old diamond to get rid of the werewolf. And I should have therefore connected telescopes and light, but I didn't. There you go. But now you have. So that'll be a really strong image for you. There you go. Which is cool. Yeah. Once again, Russell T and Doctor Who giving me all oh, the knowledge. All the time. Yeah. And I do want to know what um, kind of house penguins live in on the planet of the penguins. And and I want to know something from our listeners. Listeners, Mm. tell us, do you think aliens are out there? And what question would you want to ask of the telescope? Oh, that's a very good one. That's a very good one. Listeners, get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Get involved. Email us, tweet us, Instagram us. Exactly. All of that shit. All of that kind of stuff. Or just shout randomly in a street. Into the void. Yeah. (laughs) We won't hear you, but it'll be highly entertaining. We might, depending on where you are. (laughs) Later. 
right? You got to the end, so hopefully you did. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> well done. If you'd like more content from us, then you can follow us on Instagram. You can. And you'll also find our chief gin taster, the gin monkey, with tasting notes of all the gins that we're tasting in the series. Go on to Instagram, so it's worth following. Yeah, yeah. Topic gin. Topic gin. Same on Twitter. Same on Twitter. Send us a little tweet. Yeah, we're on Facebook too. Topic gin, keeping it all nice and simple. And you can email us. You can, if you want, at hello at ginandtopic.com. If you click subscribe as well, that would be really handy. Reviews, tell people. for you to do. And we'll be back next week. With another episode. I know. And another guest. And another gin. Yay. And don't forget to join me and Emma in our new tasting room on Sunday and she can tell us all about the gin. <laughs>